So as I said, we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. We're going to be in the book of James, but I'm going to be actually springboarding us off of the book of James into another book of the Bible. But I want to share a story with you. Years ago, there was a pastor in India who was greeted by a gentleman who came into his office who had all of these untrue and unfair accusations against the pastor. And line by line, he starts to criticize and ridicule the pastor of everything that he thinks this gentleman is doing wrong. It's one of the joys of being a pastor, right? (laughs) So after this gentleman finished his campaign of accusations, he asked the pastor what he had to say. Now, I find what the pastor did incredibly interesting. You see, the pastor did not respond with any word or statement, but instead went to the washroom carrying a basin and filled the basin up with water. Came back to the room, realizing that really everything that this man had to say, at least in the pastor's heart, he didn't believe it was true. He, he knew that it was unfounded but instead decided to take a humble path and began to ask the gentleman for his forgiveness for every single offense that he felt like he caused him. And after that, asked the man if he could wash his feet the same way that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. See, I think one of the most important traits that we can have as Christians is Cultivating our humility. It's been said that true humility always stands out as a powerful strength instead of a weakness and always pleases God. Well, today we're going to actually be looking at a different picture. We're going to be looking at what happens when you decide to be selfish when you are driven by your own desires of your heart and you envy and your life is lived with full selfish ambition. So in order to accomplish that, we're going to start off in the book of James. So I want to encourage you that if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James 3, 13, and I'm going to be reading through verse 16. And we had read this earlier in the Scripture reading today, but it will help us understand where we are trying to get to in today's message. So the Word of our Lord says in James three thirteen, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Church, as we continue to read these verses, I want to encourage you to take note of that. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Everything up into this point, in my opinion, 
in the book of James is trying to build up to this moment of helping the church understand the difference between living a humble life and the difference between living a selfish life. In other words, a life filled with pride and a life filled with humility. Because if you think about it, those are constantly opposing one another, right? Someone who is selfish is activating what part of their life? They're activating in the pride portion of their life, where someone who is humble is living completely differently. You see, a selfish person considers their own needs above all others. I am number one. I am at the center of all conversations, all concepts, and all things. And we can put this on the screen for you. Where a humble person draws attention away from themselves to focus on the needs of others. You see, it's my belief that a humble person is willing to admit they are wrong and is open to accepting direction. And that's really what you're seeing in the first three chapters of James, is James is trying to build a humble character in us. That's why in James 1.19, he gives us this formula for conversations to be doing, doing what? To be quick to listen, slow to speak. And in other portions of the chapters, like what we went through the last couple of weeks, he talks about how it's so important for us to be able to live out our faith, to do good deeds. All of those acts, in some ways, are doing what? They're placing the attention off of yourself and allowing that to go into the life of someone else. But you see, we oftentimes fail to realize our own selfish character. You see, most of us would like to think that we're humble people. And many of us would like to think that so much that we would wear that on our sleeve if we could. Look at me, I'm humble. But the reality is, is that at least within the Western American world especially, most of us are driven by our own selfishness. We live with eyes and me's, constantly thinking about how something is going to benefit ourselves. And we let people know very quickly when we are dissatisfied. When our food comes out a little undercooked or cold, or when something happens that doesn't quite live up to our glorious standards, we let people know very quickly what we think, and oftentimes with very sharp tongues. If you've ever been in the food industry as a server or as a cook, you know this lesson well. (laughs) But James is going to great lengths here to show us how we need to be so careful with this. And he brings this up specifically in verse 16, and I want to take a moment to hover over that. He says in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition for those that have their Bible with them, what comes next? It says, there you find disorder and what? 
every evil practice. The ever-witty Bible scholar John Stott said that pride is your greatest enemy. Humility is your greatest friend. Now, I only know one other verse in Scripture that really talks about how a particular sin is kind of a gateway, if you will, into all other kinds of evil. Because I want us to take the time to consider that. Because you see, it could be very easy for us to read verse 16 and hear that and then just move on. But did you see that? It said that selfish ambition leads to every single kind of evil practice. Which in some ways is James saying that if you do this sin, if you're giving into this sin, that you have the potential to lead to all, it, it, to lead to all sorts of evils. I think one of the only other sins that we hear within at least the New Testament that has such strong language comes from Paul when he's writing 1 Timothy and he tells Timothy that the love of money is the roots of all kinds of evil. So between these two verses, which, which if you ask me are in some ways rooted in selfishness, right? Because we want money, why? Because we want the power that it brings. We want the, the, the sense of, of, of accomplishment that it brings. It's all rooted in this idea of pride and selfish ambition. And James and Paul are both in some ways unanimously saying that if you give into this, You'll give in to everything. There is nothing that is off limits. That should scare us, church. That should cause us in some ways to be fearful. Because I don't know about you, but greater men than me have fallen. And if I don't get this right, Ultimately, I can give into all sorts of kinds of evil practices in this world. So to better make my point today, I'd like us to focus now on an individual in Scripture who I believe embodies the epitome of pride, selfish ambition, and envy, everything that James is talking about here. And some of you who are, are, are smart might know exactly who I'm talking about, you Bible scholar nerds, and that is King Ahab. So we are going to be in 1 Kings 21. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, flip there to 1 Kings 21. So in 1 Kings, just to kind of help tee up and understand what's going on here as you're turning there, um, and I'll put a, a, a graphic on the screen a moment, Israel has divided into two kingdoms. So after David and Solomon, who had a united kingdom of Israel, um, the kings that followed that ended up ending into a divided kingdom, where the kingdom was divided into what's called north and south. So north kingdom was the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. 
Now, many of you probably know that the, the kingdom had 12 tribes. So 10 tribes occupied the northern kingdom while two tribes occupied the southern kingdom. This is important because in the northern kingdom, when we read through the book of Kings, we see that the northern kingdom has consistently fallen away from what God desires for his people. And it probably comes at the biggest climax in the life of King Ahab, who was the king of Israel at the time. So King Ahab was specifically, and I have it circled there for you, was specifically a king in the capital of Israel, which was in Samaria, okay? So that's one of the circles that you see there, kind of on the, the, the southwest side there. Now, there's another circle on there, and I'll go back to it after we read. So it says in 1 Kings 21.2, Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer, I will pay whatever it is worth. So Ahab, who is this wicked king, comes up to this gentleman named Naboth asking for what? His vineyard. He wants his vineyard, and why does he specifically want his vineyard? Well, Scripture tells us that he wants his vineyard because he wants to be able to have a vegetable garden. I don't know why he needs a vegetable garden, but he has a vegetable garden. I'm sure he has plenty of vegetables in his palace, but this is what Ahab wants. So he goes to Naboth, and he specifically asks his Naboth, can I have your vineyard? Now, Naboth's vineyard was located in that second circle that I had on the map there. So it was relatively close to Samaria, uh, but not quite. But it was in that region of Jezreel. But notice how King Ahab talks to Naboth. Does he give him a lot of choices? No, he basically gives him two choices or two options. He basically says, give it to me and I'll give you something else, a better vineyard. Or option two is give it to me and I will pay you for whatever it's worth. Nowhere in that conversation does he predicate it by saying, if it's for sale, if you would allow it, if it's okay with you. He basically says, give me this, here are your two options. Now, we live in a very different world than this ancient Middle Eastern world. But if you didn't know this, this would be in some ways a, a, a scary experience. Why? Because kings have a history of getting what they want. And it's not always the cute and cuddly stories that we see, but oftentimes it's through their strength and their will that they get what they want. So in some ways, Naboth had to have felt nervous in this moment, realizing that the king desires something that he has. 
And in some ways, I think this harks back to what the Lord had told the kingdom of Israel would happen if they elected a king in uh, 1 Samuel 8, 14. The Lord warned them and said that if you have a king, he will try to take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. And in this case, Ahab wanted it for himself. But listen to Naboth's reply to King Ahab. He says in verse 3, But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. You see, this land was passed on to Naboth from generation to generation, and Naboth realized its importance. You know, many of you have parents and, and, and grandparents who have passed certain things down to you. It might not be land, but maybe it's something else. And hopefully, you appreciate what has been given to you. And I'm sure there are certain precious and sacred possessions that you own that you hope to one day give to your children. And Naboth is doing a good job of recognizing that, appreciating that, and not squandering what his fathers have worked so hard to care and steward over. So he tells King Ahab, I'm sorry, but I can't do that because I wouldn't just be disgracing my family legacy, but I believe I'd be disgracing God. See, church, there are certain things that money cannot buy and ought not to buy, and doing so would likely dishonor ourselves or even worse, dishonor God. You see, I believe that we need to have the foreknowledge to consider our actions, the things that we possess, the ways that we live, how we speak, and how that's not just going to influence the generation that precedes us, but how that honors the generation that, that, that came before us. Church, do you pay close attention to those details? Do you pay close attention not just to how you are honoring your parents, but how are you honoring the legacy that the Lord is entrusting you with? Here's the thought. We've been entrusted with God's kingdom for this present age. Think about it. If you have breath in your lungs and if you are alive in the year of 2021, the church age that we are in, the, the mission that we are in, we are the ones that have been entrusted with it. We are the ones during this present moment that have been entrusted with building God's kingdom, with preaching the gospel, with helping people to know who the living Christ is. That is entrusted to everyone here, not the people before us, they're dead. Not the people that come after us, they're not yet living, but the people in this room, church, you have been entrusted for this season of history with helping to build and care for the kingdom of God. Are you taking that seriously? You know, after Naboth's reply, we really see Ahab's true character. And specifically in verse 4, it says that Ahab went home 
And what does it say there on the screen? He went home happy and joyful that Naboth was a good person that honored his father and mother and thought about the generations that preceded him. Oh, I got it a little wrong. Okay, it says that he was sullen and angry because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestor. So it says that he laid in his bed sulking and refusing to eat. Now, I think that is quite pathetic because if you were to ask me, I would hope that the kingdom leader of Israel would appreciate the character of an individual who would not just freely and loosely give away something so meaningful for himself and his family. Church, we need to be careful with people that are so willing and easy to give away things that have value. But instead, Ahab, who can't see past his own selfish desires, does what? He's sullen, he's angry, and he's basically depressed. If you're stuck in your room and refusing to eat, I mean, that is one of the flag earmarks of depression. And he's allowing this situation to utterly change his whole entire disposition. But here, I want to take a moment and point it back to us. How do you handle not getting what you want? I know it's a difficult question, but I need to ask it. How do you handle not getting what you want? How do you act after those moments that you don't get the desires of your heart and and it, it doesn't just happen the way that you'd like? You know, this is something that I'm preaching to myself in truth. Just this past week, this last Sunday, we were rejected for another house. And it was hard for us. Many of you know that we've been looking for almost two years now for a home. And there's certain things that have been weighing on us. And we finally found a home. It was a little further than we want it to be. But it, it, it checkboxed most everything that, that um, we wanted in a home. And even then, we still felt like we had to stretch ourselves tremendously to be able to afford it just because that's the market of, of where we're at in Colorado. And I felt so much peace about the home when we were there, and so did my wife, and we were just envisioning the kids playing in the backyard, us being able to to have people over and do ministry there, because unfortunately, where we're at right now, it just makes it really hard. And all these things together just turned into anger and frustration on my part, where after I got the no, I immediately just started turning to God and just saying, Lord, I don't get it. I feel like every reason why we want to get a home is for a good cause, a good reason, and why aren't you allowing this to happen? And I was upset and angry to God. So if in answering this question, how do you act when you do not get what you want? Well, the truth is, at least for me, is that I get frustrated and angry towards God. How do you act? Look, I don't think I'm any more special than anybody in this room, but chances are that if I'm struggling to act appropriately, even though I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm someone that loves the Scriptures, 
then most likely you are too. And church, we need to take the time to recognize that and not allow that to be the place that we end. You see, it's okay to have feelings that, that cause us to feel depressed, but we can't live in that because if we live in that, we end up doing what? We grow into bitter people. Unfortunately, we see it regularly, right? Where we see when people's experiences don't line up to their own expectations of what they want to happen, they become bitter by it. Those moments embitter them to be the kinds of people that are just pessimistic, angry, upset, sullen people. And the biggest cause of that, in my belief, that we see in Scripture is because of selfishness, pride. How are you handling these moments, church? And look, maybe your situation isn't like mine. Maybe, maybe you are looking for a home. I don't know. But maybe your situation looks a little different. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's looking for a specific job, wanting a relationship to be different than what it is, desiring for your health to be better, or maybe your body to be in a better shape. Whatever it is, how do you act when things don't go according to what you desire or what you plan. You see, we can't sulk in these situations. So what ends up happening to Ahab? Well, Ahab is married to this woman named Jezebel. A little bit about her. If you didn't know, Jezebel is kind of a turning point in the book of Kings. Because you see, up until that point, or at least at that point, when, when um, King Ahab, who's the son of Omri, marries Jezebel, that's a transitional moment where for the first time in Israel's history, a king marries a pagan person outside of the faith. Jezebel was not just a pagan person, she was a wicked person till, to where till today we use her name to mean what kind of woman? A woman who typically may, might be promiscuous or a woman who is just wicked in nature, malicious. And that's exactly who Jezebel was. So hearing him sulk and seeing him depressed, Jezebel goes up to Ahab and asks him what's wrong. And in verse 6 of 1 Kings 21, Ahab tells her this, Because I said to Naboth, the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. So he tells this to his wife Jezebel, and what does he sound like ultimately? He sounds like a spoiled little child, right? I mean, there's a kind of a term that we use, he is a man baby. <laughs> he is being a baby, even though he's a grown adult. But did you notice something that Ahab leaves out in verse 6? Take a look 
at his explanation to Jezebel. What did Ahab leave out of his conversation with her? Yeah, he specifically leaves out the fact that Naboth said no, not because he's a mean person, but because he was trying to honor his family's legacy in the Lord. So he leaves that out. He can't even recognize that. Why? Because Ahab is a person who is driven by his own self-interest. So it doesn't even compute. He didn't even hear it. All he heard when he talked to Naboth was what? A no. He didn't see anything past that. So, of course, when Ahab selfishly explains the story, he leaves that portion out. And Jezebel hears it and says to herself, all right, well, let's figure out how I can fix this. This is so sad, and I think the question can be appropriately used here and asked is, is when, when something is causing us trouble, are we thinking only under selfish terms? You see, in the life of Ahab, Naboth was getting in the way of his happiness. Naboth is the problem. But the truth is, is that Ahab was getting in the way of his own happiness. He was the one that was consumed by what he wanted for himself, that he failed to appreciate his blessings. Church, do not forget the goodness of God in your life. Hear me well. Do not forget the goodness of God in your life. Ahab, despite being a terrible person, was incredibly blessed. He was a king over a nation. He lived in a palace. He was wealthy and of means. He had loyal and subjects that would literally direct and advocate on his behalf for his life, that would intercede for him towards God for his well-being. He won multiple victories on the battlefield, and yet all of that was not good enough. And he was completely led to depression because he could not get what he wanted. Do you take the time, church, to consider the blessings that you have? Do you take inventory of that? Especially if you are married, I want to encourage you to do that because so often what happens in marriage is we tend to forget the blessing that our spouse is to us and we only focus on our selfish desires of what we want to get out of the relationship and not necessarily what brought us together. Amen? And if we, can, if we fail to think of any blessing that we have, may we remember the blessing of our salvation, that the Lord turned a wicked heart and regenerated us from death to life. And through that process brings us hope, peace, joy, patience, kindness, salvation. See, I think this is why James, in chapter 3, points out this issue of selfish ambition and envy, because James wants us to avoid it because it truly is unspiritual and it's demonic. 
But pastor, I'll be honest with you. I don't know how to get out of this state of thinking. Maybe some of you are saying that right now. Well, pastor, I hear what you're saying. I, I see what you're saying. It makes sense, but you know, I'm well advanced in my years and I have not stopped being selfish and I have not stopped being able to get out of that. What do I do? Well, I think there's many things that you can do to be able to break that selfishness in yourself, but probably one of the best things that you can do to grow in humility and to avoid that sense of pride, and, and because here's the thing, if you're a selfish person, you're most likely a bitter person, a depressed person, is to do this very simple thing. Serve others see, I believe serving others is a remedy for depression. It's a remedy for selfishness. And you see, when I was writing this up, I wrote that up because I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm talking about depression, I want to be careful because I don't want to undermine the work of psychology or those that are on the field combating depression in the lives of individuals, whether it's through a counseling setting or otherwise. So what did I do? I looked up if there is some merit to what we see in the scriptures of serving others being a remedy for depression. And in fact, there is. If you go on Psychology Today, there was a study done in 2017 that was sponsored by the University of Michigan and the Seattle Pacific University that examined two different groups of people that were depressed and anxious. And they offered two different methods for these people to deal with their depression and their anxiety. And for group one, what they were tasked with doing is they were focused on, on their self-image goals. So they specifically had this group of people take the time to focus on their own self-image by creating settings, by trying to, you know, live life in a way that would hopefully gain them approval and avoid vulnerable situations where social act interactions could lead to negative experiences. So an example would be getting others to notice your positive qualities, focusing on you, 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 you. And here's the thing, I've experienced this method through the academy. I've experienced people trying to, you know, focus overly on self-esteem. So for group two, they did this. They did something totally different. So instead of focusing on your own self-image goals, what they did for this group is they had this group start by creating goals of compassion. So this group had to strive to help others and had to strive to avoid selfish behavior. So, for example, they had to think of a goal of compassion to make a positive difference in someone else's life. So the researchers took these two groups, let them do their thing, and they had at it. And what's amazing is, is that the analysis showed that a greater focus on self-image did the opposite of what they wanted to accomplish. So according to this study, it was linked that the people who did that increased in their relationship conflict and actually worsened their symptoms during the six-week study of depression and anxiety in their life. 
And in contrast, the, the group of people that focused on the compassionate goals were associated with lower levels of anxiety and depression and less relationship conflict. Now, amazed by this information, what the study decided to do is they decided to follow up on the significant others of those individuals. So people that specifically were spouses, friends, family members, those kinds of people. And they, ta- they asked them some similar questions. And the results that came back from that was not only was the individual scoring higher in their ability to be happy, but it had a profound effect on those that were around their life. Guys, this should bring us hope. This should help us. Because scriptures are consistently demonstrating throughout the ages truth. The kind of truth that sets us free from the situations of darkness that we face in our lives. So take it seriously. If you are battling selfishness, if you just feel like you are in a sullen state of despair over the fact that you can't get what you want, Try serving somebody else. Try taking the focus off of you and placing that focus on somebody else. And here's the thing. Our church, we're, we're trying to do that. We are admitting that we are in a season of transition where we are trying to discover better for ourselves what it means to live out our faith within this context. But I encourage you that if you are not serving in this church to maybe use that as an avenue to not focus on yourself but focus on somebody else. We have needs I know in the nursery. We have needs I know in children's ministry. Become an usher. Be the first person that responds to those that walk in our doors by offering a warm welcome, a friendly hello. Or if you can't do that, then consider joining us with Operation Christmas Child and bringing joy into these little boys' and girls' lives that are in need. But whatever you do, do something to the building and betterment of God's kingdom, amen? You know, I wish we had time to go through the whole entire story of what happens next. But just to kind of tell you in short, Jezebel who is utterly depraved, thinks up a brilliant plan of wickedness to be able to kill Naboth. So she plots and she decides that she's going to create um, false witnesses to make a testimony against Naboth in order for Naboth to be committed to capital punishment. And exactly that happens. A Naboth is wrongly accused for a crime that he did not commit. And his punishment is to be dragged outside of the city as filth who can't even die within his own city because it would taint the city itself. So he's dragged to the outskirts of the city and he's pelted with rocks to death. Jezebel and Ahab, they don't even flutter. Jezebel goes back to Ahab and tells him, well, Naboth's dead. And they don't even blink an eye. And Ahab immediately gets up from his depression and cheerfully goes to Naboth's vineyard in Jezreel in order for him to 
claim now his vineyard. It's sad, it's tragic, and the Lord ultimately intervenes. And he sends Elijah there to be able to intercept Ahab and pronounces a judgment over him that eventually will be carried out and eventually both Ahab and Jezebel are dealt with for their actions. But I share this story with you, church, because I think we need to understand something very important. That humility is the key to wisdom in life. And it's my only point for today. Humility is the key to wisdom in life. I had changed it, so that's why you see that other one. (laughs) But that's true also. So write them both down. Here's the thing. We read Ahab's story. We see how Jezebel treats Naboth. We see all these evil things happen, and it's easy for us to think to ourselves, we would not do the same. But the truth is, is that according to James, selfish ambition will lead to every evil practice. I think the only thing that sometimes separates us from committing these gross sins is ultimately if, do we have the, the power? Do we have the time? Do we have the opportunity? You see, I think that many of us would do some terrible things if we had the power, the time, and the opportunity to do it. He's king. Who, who's going to do anything to him? So because of that, his heart in some ways gets to go to the fullest extent of what evil can be. And the reality is, is sometimes what holds us back from evil is the fact that we don't have that same opportunity. But who are we behind closed doors? Who are we when nobody else is looking or watching us? Who are we when we're entrusted with something? Maybe it's power or influence. And I want you to understand very well, church, that if we don't get this right, we can go wildly astray. But that God is ultimately calling us to be humble people and to make sure that that is on display for the whole entire world to see because the world needs more humble people. Amen? Will you be that kind of person? Because... We need to see it. 